19. You get ready to rumble. It has been one month since you last went above ground. It has been two days since you killed Alabaster in your folly and pain. All things change in a season. Castrima over is occupied. The tunnel that you first passed through to enter the calm is blocked. One of the calm's origins has pulled a big slab of stone up from the earth to effectively seal it off. Probably Yika, or Cutter before Yika killed him. They were the two others in the calm with the best fine control besides you and Alabaster. Now two of those four are dead, and the enemy is at the gates. The strong backs who are clustered in the tunnel mouth behind the stone seal jump up as you walk into the electric light circle. And the ones who are already standing stand straighter. Zebair, Esni's second in command among the strongbacks, actually smiles at the sight of you. That's how bad things are. That's how worried everyone is. They've so lost their minds as to think of you as their champion. I don't like this, Yika has said to you. She's back in the calm, organizing the defense that will be necessary if the tunnels are breached. The real danger is if the Renanis scouts discover the ventilation ducts of Kastrima's geode. They're well hidden, one in the cavern of an underground river, others in equally out-of-the-way places, as if the people who built Kastrima feared attack themselves but the comms people will be forced out if those are sealed off. And they've got stone eaters working with them. You are dangerous and rasta enough to fuck up an army, Essie. I'll give you that. But none of us can fight stone eaters. If they kill you, we lose our best weapon. She says this to you at Scenic Overlook, where the two of you went to work things out. It was awkward for about a day between you. By forbidding a vote, you undercut Yika's authority and destroyed everyone's illusion of having a say in the comms management. That was necessary, you still believe. Everyone shouldn't have a say in whose life is worth fighting for. She actually agreed, she admitted as you talked, but it damaged her. You didn't apologize for that, but you've tried to spackle the cracks. You are Kastrima's best weapon, you said firmly. You even meant it. That Kostrima has lasted this far, a calm of stills who have repeatedly failed to lynch the Ragas openly living among them, is miraculous. Even if hasn't yet committed genocidal slaughter, is a low bar to hop. Other communities haven't even managed that much. You'll give credit where it's due. It eased the awkwardness between you. Well, just don't rusting die, she told you at last. Not sure I can keep this mess together without you at this point. Yika's good at that, making people feel like they've got a reason to do something. That's why she's the headwoman. And that is why, now, you walk through a Kastrima over that has been turned into a camp by the soldiers of Renanis, and you're actually afraid. It's always harder to fight for other people than for the self. The ash has been falling steadily for a year now, and the calm is knee-deep in the stuff. There's been at least one rain to tamp it down recently, so you can cess a kind of damp mud crust underneath the powdery layer on top, 
but even that's substantial. Enemy soldiers crowd the porches and doorways of the once-empty houses, watching you. And the untempt ash under the eaves is halfway up most of the houses' walls. They've had to dig out the windows. The soldiers look like... just people, because they don't wear uniforms. But there is a uniformity to them nevertheless. They are all fully sunset or very sunset looking. Where you can see color in their ash-faded travel clothing... You spot that telltale scrap of prettier, more delicate cloth tied around their upper arms or wrists or foreheads. No longer displaced equatorials, then. They've found a calm. Something older and more primal than a calm. They are a tribe. And now they're here to take what's yours. But beyond that, they are just people. Many are your age or older, you guess that a lot of them are surplus strongbacks, or calmless trying to prove their usefulness. There are slightly more men than women, but that follows, too, since most calms are quicker to kick out those who can't produce babies than those who can. But the number of women here means that Renanus isn't hurting for healthy repopulators. A strong calm. Their eyes follow you as you walk down Kastrima Over's main street. You stand out, you know, with your ashless skin and clean hair and your clothes bright with color. Just brown leather pants and unbleached white in your shirt. But these are colors that have become rare in this world of gray streets and gray dead trees and a gray heavily clouded sky. You're the only mid-ladder that you see, too. And you're small compared to most of them. Doesn't matter. Behind you floats the spinal, remaining precisely one foot behind the back of your head and turning slowly. You aren't making it do that. You don't know why it's doing that, really. Unless you hold it in your hand, that's what the thing does. You tried to set it down, but it floated back up and moved behind you like this. Should have asked Alabaster how to make it behave before you killed him. Oh, well... Now it's flickering a little, real to translucent to real again, and you can hear, not cess, hear, the faint hum of its energies as it turns. You see people's faces twitch as they notice. They might not know what it is, but they know a bad thing when they hear it. At the center of Kostrima Over is a domed open pavilion that Yika tells you was once the calm's gathering center used for wedding dances and parties and the occasional calm-wide meeting. It's been turned into some sort of operations center, you see as you walk toward it. A gaggle of men and women stand, squat, or sit around within it, but one knot of them stands around a freshly made table. When you get close enough, you see that they've got a crudely made diagram of Kostrima and a map of the local area side by side, which they're discussing. To your dismay, you can see that they've marked at least one of the ventilation ducts, the one that's behind a small waterfall at the nearby river. They probably lost a scout or two finding it. The river's banks are by now infested with boil bug mounds. Doesn't matter. They found it, and that's bad. Three of the people talking over the maps look up as you approach. One of them elbows another, who turns and shakes awake someone else as you walk into the pavilion and stop a few feet from the table. The woman who gets up, rubbing her face blearily as she comes to join the others, 
does not look particularly impressive. She's cut her hair on the sides to just above her ears, a painfully blunt chop that looks to have been done with a knife. It makes her look small, even though she's not particularly. Her torso is a smooth barrel, brief breasts blending into a belly that's probably carried at least one child, and legs like basalt pillars. She's not wearing anything more than the others. Her sash of tribe membership is just a fading yellow silk kerchief hanging loosely around her neck. But there's a gravity in her gaze, even half asleep, that makes you focus on her. Kostrima? She asks you by way of greeting. It's all that really matters about who you are anyway. You nod. I speak for them. She rests her hands on the table, nodding. Our message got delivered then. Her gaze flicks to the spinal hovering behind you, and something adjusts in her expression. It's not hate that you're seeing. Hate requires emotion. What this woman has simply done is realize you are a raga and decide that you aren't a person. Just like that. Indifference is worse than hate. Well, you can't muster indifference in response. You can't help but see her as human. Have to make do with hate, then. And what's more interesting is that she somehow knows what the spinal is and what it means. Very interesting. We're not joining you, you say. You want to fight over that? So be it. She tilts her head to one side. One of her lieutenants chuckles into their hand, but is swiftly glared silent by another. You like the silencing. It's respectful of your abilities, if not of you per se, and of Kostrima, even if they don't think you have a chance. Even if you actually probably don't have a chance. We don't even have to attack, you realize, the woman says. We can just sit up here, kill anybody who comes up to hunt or trade, starve you out. You manage not to react. We have a little meat. It'll take a while. Months at least for the vitamin deficiencies to set in. Our stores are pretty solid otherwise. You force a shrug. And other communities have gotten around meat shortages easily enough. She grins. Her teeth aren't sharpened. But you think momentarily that her canines are longer than they strictly need to be. It's probably projection. True, if that's your taste which is why we're also working on finding your vents. She taps the map. Close them up and suffocate you till you're weak. Then break down those barriers you've put across the tunnels and dance right in. Stupid to live underground. Once someone knows you're there, you're actually an easier target, not a harder one. This is true, but you shake your head. We can be hard enough if you push us. But Kostrima isn't rich and our store caches aren't any better than those of another calm that's not full of ragas. You pause for effect. The woman doesn't flinch, but there's a shuffle among the other people in the pavilion as they realize. Good. That means they're thinking. So many easier nuts to crack out there. Why are you bothering with us? You know why they're really doing this. Because gray man's after origins who can open the obelisk gate but that can't be what he's told them. What could induce a strong, stable, equatorial calm to turn conqueror 
Wait, no. It can't be stable. Renonis is relatively close to the rift. Even with living node maintainers, life in such a calm would be hard. Daily blow-throughs of noxious gas, ashfall much worse than here, requiring people to wear masks at all times. Earth help them if it rains. It could be pure acid. And that's if rain is even possible with the rift cranking out heat and ash nearby. Doubtful they have any livestock. So maybe they're facing a meat shortage too. Because this is what it will take to survive, the woman says to your surprise. She straightens and folds her arms. Renanis has too many people for our stores. All the survivors of every equatorial city have come to camp on our doorstep. We would have had to do this anyway, or have problems with too large of a calmless population in the area. Might as well weaponize them into feeding themselves and bringing what's left back home to the calm. You know this season isn't going to end. It will. Eventually, she shrugs. Our masts have calculated that if we grow enough shrooms and such and strictly limit our population, we might achieve enough sustainability to survive until the season ends. The odds are better if we take the store caches of every other calm we encounter, though. You roll your eyes because you can't help it. You think cash bread's going to last a thousand years, or two, or ten, and then a few hundred thousand years of ice? She pauses until you're done. And if we set up supply lines from every calm with renewables, we'll need some coastal calms with oceanic resources, some Antarctics where growing low-light plants might still be possible. She pauses, also for effect. But you mid-ladders eat too much. Well, so basically, you're here to wipe us out. You shake your head. Why didn't you just say so? Why the foolishness about getting rid of the origins? Someone from beyond the pavilion calls, Daniel, And the woman looks up, nodding absently. This is apparently her name. Always a chance you turn on each other. Then we could just walk in and scrape up the leftovers. She shakes her head. Now things have to be hard. The dull, insistent buzz that suddenly impinges itself on her sesapine is a warning as blatant as a scream. It's too late the instant you cess it, because that means you're within range of the Guardian's ability to negate your orogeny. You turn anyway, half-tripping even as you start to spin a huge torus that will flash-freeze the whole rusting town, and it is because you were expecting negation and did not deploy a tight, shielding torus that the disruption knife pegs you in the right arm. You remember Alabaster saying that these knives hurt. The thing is small, made for throwing, and it should hurt, given that it's sunk into your bicep and probably chipping bone. But what Alabaster did not specify, you are irrationally furious with him hours after his death, stupid, useless ruster, was that something about this knife seems to set your entire nervous system on fire. The fire is hottest, incandescent in your sesapine, even though those are nowhere near your arm. It hurts so much that all your muscles spasm at once. You flop onto your side and can't even scream. You just lie there twitching and staring at the woman who steps through the gaggle of Renanis soldiers to grin down at you. She's surprisingly young, or so she seems. 
though appearances are meaningless because she is a guardian. She's naked from the waist up, her skin shockingly dark amid all these sansids, her breasts small and almost entirely aureola, reminding you of the last time you were pregnant. You thought your tits would never shrink back down after Uche, and you wonder if it will hurt when you are shaken to pieces the way Inan was. Everything goes black. You don't understand what's happening at first. Are you dead? Was it that quick? Everything's still on fire, and you think you're still trying to scream, but you become aware of new sensations then. Movement, rushing, something rather like wind. The touch of foreign molecules against infinitesimal receptors in your skin. It is oddly peaceful. You almost forget your pain. Then light, startling against the eyelids you hadn't realized you'd closed. You can't open them. Someone curses nearby and comes near, and hands press you down, which nearly makes you panic because you can't do orogeny with your nerves exploding like this. But then someone yanks the knife out of your arm. It is as though a shake siren within you has been suddenly silenced. You slump in relief into just ordinary pain, and open your eyes now that you can control your voluntary muscles again. Lerna's there. You're on the floor of his apartment. The light is from his crystal walls, and he's holding the knife and staring down at you. Beyond him, Hoa stands in a pose of entreaty, which he must have been directing toward Lerna. His eyes have shifted to you, though he hasn't bothered to adjust the pose. Burning, rusty fuck, you groan sigh. And then, because now you know what must have happened, you add, thanks, to Hoa, who pulled you down into the earth and away before the guardian could kill you. Never thought you'd be grateful for something like that. Lerna's dropped the knife and already turned away to find bandages. You're not bleeding much. The knife went in vertically, paralleling rather than cutting across the tendons, and it seems to have missed the big artery. Hard to tell when your hands are still shaking a little. Shock. But Lerna's not moving at that blurring near inhuman speed he tends to use when a life is on the line. So you're encouraged by that. Lerna says his back to you as he assembles items. I take it your attempt at parley didn't go well. Things have been awkward between you and him lately. He's made his interest clear, and you haven't responded in kind. You haven't rejected him either, though, thus the awkwardness. At one point a few weeks back, Alabaster grumbled that you should just roll the boy already, because you were always crankier when you were horny. You called him an ass and changed the subject, but really? Alabaster's why you've been thinking about it more. You keep thinking about Alabaster too, though. Is this grief? You hated him, loved him, missed him for years, made yourself forget him, found him again, loved him again, killed him. The grief does not feel like what you feel about Uche or Corundum or Inan. Those are rents in your soul that still seep blood. The loss of Alabaster is simply a thinning of who you are. And maybe now is not the time to consider your cataclysm of a love life. No, you say. You shrug off your jacket. 
Underneath, you're wearing a sleeveless shirt, good for Kastrima's warmth. Lerna turns back and crouches and begins swabbing away the blood with a pad of soft rags. You were right. I shouldn't have gone up there. They had a guardian. Lerna's eyes flick up to yours, then back to your wound. I heard they could stop Orogeny. This one didn't have to. That damn knife did it for her. You think you know why, too, as you remember Inan. That guardian didn't negate him either. Maybe the skin thing only works on Ragas whose orogeny is still active. That's how she wanted to kill you. But Lerna's jaw muscle is already tight, and you decide maybe he doesn't need to know that. I didn't know about the guardian, Hoa says unexpectedly. I'm sorry. You eye him. I didn't expect stone eaters to be omniscient. I said I would protect you. His voice is more inflectionless now that he's not in flesh shape anymore. Or maybe his voice is the same, and you just can't read it as inflectionless because he has no body language to embellish it. Despite this, he sounds angry, with himself, maybe. You did. You wince as Lerna starts winding a bandage around your arm tightly. No stitches, though, so that's good. Not that I wanted to be dragged into the earth, but your timing was excellent. You were hurt. Definitely angry with himself. This is the first time he's sounded to you like the boy he appeared to be for so long. Is he young for one of his kind? Young at heart? Maybe just so open and honest that he might as well be young. I live. That's what matters. He falls silent. Lerna works in silence. Between the collective air of disapproval that the two of them exude, you can't help feeling a little guilty. Afterward, you leave Lerna's apartment to head to Flat Top, where Yika has set up an operations center of her own. Someone's brought the rest of the divans from her apartment, and she set them up in a rough semicircle, basically bringing her counsel out into the open. In token of this, Hyarka sprawls over one divan as she usually does, head propped on fist, and taking up the whole thing so no one else can sit down. And Tonki is pacing in the middle of the semicircle. There are others around, anxious or bored people, who've brought their own chairs or are sitting on the hard crystal floor, but not as many as you would have expected. There's a lot of activity around the calm, you noticed as you headed to the flat top. People fletching arrows in one chamber that you pass, building crossbows in another. Down on the ground level, you can see what looks like a long knife-wielding class. A slender young man is teaching about 30 people how to do an over-and-under strike. Over by Scenic Overlook, some of the innovators seem to be rigging what looks like a dropped rocks trap. The spectators perk up as you and Lerna come onto the flat top, though. That's hilarious. Everyone knows you volunteered to go topside to deliver Kastrima's answer to Renanis. You did this in part to show publicly that you weren't taking over. Yika's still in charge. Everyone seems to be reading it as a sign that you may be crazy. But at least you're on their side. Such hope in their eyes. It dies down quickly, though. That you are back, and that there is a visibly bloody bandage around one arm. 
is reassuring to no one. Tonky's in full rent about something. Even though she's ready for battle, having traded her skirt for billowy pantaloons, tied her hair up atop her head in a scruffy pile of curls, and strapped twin glass knives to both thighs. She actually looks kind of stunning. Then you pay attention to what she's saying. The third wave will need to be the most delicate touch. Pressure sets them off, see? A temperature differential should make the wind gust enough, the air pressure drop enough. But it has to happen fast, and no shaking. We're going to lose the forest either way, but shaking will just make them dig in. We need them moving. I can handle that, Ika says, though she looks troubled. At least, I can handle part of it. No, it has to be done all at once. Tonky stops and glowers at her. That's not rusting negotiable. She sees you then and stops, her eyes going immediately to the bandage around your arm. Ika turns and her eyes widen too. Damn. You shake your head wearily. I agreed it was worth a shot. And now we know they can't be reasoned with. Then you sit down, and the people on the flat top fall silent as you impart what intelligence you were able to glean from your trip topside. An army of surplus people occupying the houses, a general named Danel, at least one guardian. Adding this to what you already know, stone eaters on their side, a whole city more of them somewhere in the equatorials, paints a bleak picture. But it is the unknowns that are the most alarming. How did they know about the meat shortage? No one seems to be holding the Grey Stone Eater's revelation against Yika, or at least they aren't doing it right now, even though they now know she was keeping the information from them. Headwomen are supposed to make choices like that. How are they finding the rusting vents? With enough people, it's not hard to search, you start to suggest, but she cuts you off. It is. We've been using this geode in one way or another for 50 years. We know the land, and it took us years to find those vents. One's in a damned peat bog further along the river, which stinks to the heavens and occasionally catches fire. She sits forward, propping her elbows on her knees and sighing. How did they even know we were here? Even our trading partners have only ever seen Kastrima over. Maybe they have origins working with them, too, Lerna says. After so many weeks of hearing mostly Raga, his polite origin sounds strained and artificial to your ears. They could. No, says Yika. She looks at you, then. Kastrima's huge. When you came into the area, did you notice a giant hole in the ground? You blink in surprise. She nods before you can answer, since your face has said it all. Yeah, you should have. But something about this place sort of, I don't know, shunts away orogeny. Once you're in it, it's the opposite, of course. The geode feeds on us to power itself. But next time you're topside, and not being almost killed, I mean, try assessing this place. You'll see what I'm talking about. She shakes her head. Even if they've got pet rogas, they shouldn't have known we were here. Yarka sighs and rolls onto her back, muttering under her breath. Tonky bears her teeth, 
Probably a habit she's picking up from Hyarka. That's not relevant, Tonki snaps. Because you don't want to hear it, babe, Hyarka says. Doesn't mean it's wrong. You like things neat. Life's not neat. You like things messy. Ika likes things explained, Ika says pointedly. Tonki hesitates, and Hyarka sighs and says, It's not the first time I've thought there might be a spy in the com. Oh, rust! There's an immediate murmur and shuffle among the people listening. Lerna stares at her. That makes no sense, he says. None of us has any reason to betray Kestrima. Anyone taken into this com had nowhere else to go. That isn't true. Yarka rolls to sit upright, grinning and flashing her sharp teeth. I could have gone to my mom's birth com. She was leadership there before she left to go to my birth com. Too much competition, and she wanted to be a headwoman. I left my com because I didn't want to be headwoman after her. Com full of assholes. But I definitely wasn't planning to live out my useless years in a hole in the ground. She looks at Yika. Yika sighs in a long-suffering way. I can't believe you're still mad I didn't ask you. I told you, I needed the help. Right, but just saying. I wouldn't have stayed if you'd asked me at the time. You'd rather have some overcrowded equatorial calm with delusions of being old Sansa reborn? Lerna frowns. I wouldn't, Yarka shrugs. I like it here now. But I'm saying that somebody else might prefer Renonis, enough to sell us out for a place in it. We need to find this spy, shouts someone from over near the rope bridge. No, you say then, sharply. It's your teacher voice, and everyone jumps and looks at you. Danelle said she hoped to make Kostrima tear itself apart. We're not starting any Raga hunts here. This has two meanings but you're not trying to be clever. You know full well that your teacher voice isn't the only reason everyone's staring at you in palpable unease. The spinal still floats behind you, having followed you down from the surface. Yika rubs her eyes. You gotta stop threatening people, Essie. I mean, I know you grew up in the fulcrum and don't really know any better, but it's not good community behavior. You blink, a little thrown, and a lot insulted. But she's right. Calm survived through a careful balance of trust and fear. Your impatience is tilting the balance too far out of true. Fine, you say. Everyone relaxes a little, relieved that Yika can talk you down, and there are even a few nervous chuckles. But I still don't think it's relevant to discuss whether there's a spy right now. If there is, Renanis knows what they know. All we can do is try to come up with a plan they won't anticipate. Tonki points at you and glares at Hyarka with a wordless C. Hyarka sits forward, planting a hand on one knee and glaring at all of you. She doesn't usually argue much. That was Cutter's role. But you see stubbornness in the set of her jaw now. It rusting matters if the spy is still here, though. Good luck keeping them from anticipating if... The commotion begins at scenic overlook. It's hard to see from flat top, but someone's shouting for Yika 
She's on her feet at once, heading in that direction, but a small figure, one of the comm's children working as a runner, comes darting along the pathways to meet her before she's even crossed the main bridge from Flattop. Message from the topside tunnels, the boy calls, even before he halts. Says the Rennies are sledgehammering in. Yika looks at Tonki. Tonki nods briskly. Marat said the charges were set. Wait, what? You ask. Yika ignores you. To the child, she says, tell them to fall back and follow the plan. Go. The boy turns and runs off, though only to a point where he's got a clear sight line to scenic. He holds up a hand, clenches a fist, and then releases it in a splay of fingers. There's a series of whistles throughout the calm as this signal gets relayed, and a lot of bustling as clusters of people gather and head off into the tunnels. You recognize some of them, strongbacks and innovators. You have no idea what's going on. Yika seems remarkably calm as she turns back to face you. Going to need your help, she says softly. If they're using sledgehammers, then that's good. They don't have any ruggers. But collapsing the tunnels will hold them for a short time, if they're really determined to come down here. And I don't much like the idea of being trapped. Will you help me build an escape tunnel? You draw back a little, stunned. Collapsing the tunnels? But of course it is the only strategy that makes sense. Kastrima cannot fight off an army that outnumbers them, outweapons them, and out-allies them in stone-eaters and guardians. What are we supposed to do, flee? Ika shrugs. You understand now why she looks so tired, not just dealing with the calm almost turning on its ragas, but fear for the future. It's a contingency. I've had people carrying critical stores into side caverns for days now. We can't carry it all, of course, or even most of it. But if we leave and go hide somewhere, we've got a place, before you ask, storage cavern a few miles away. Then even if the Rennies break in, they'll find a calm that's dark and worthless and that will suffocate them if they stay too long. They'll take what they can and go. And maybe we can come back when they're done. And this is why she's the head woman. While you've been caught up in your own dramas, Yika's been doing all this. Still, if they have even one raga with them, the geode will function. It'll be theirs. We'll be calmless. Yeah, as a contingency plan, it blows. You're right. Ika sighs. Which is why I want to try Tonki's plan. Yarka looks furious. A rusting told you I don't want to be a headwoman, Yeek. Ika rolls her eyes. You'd rather be calmless? Suck it up. You turn from her to Tonki and back, feeling completely lost. Tonki sighs in frustration, but forces herself to explain. Controlled orogeny, she says. Sustained bursts of slow cooling at the surface, in a ring around the area, but closing inward, centered on the calm. This will excite the boil bugs into a swarm state. The other innovators have been studying their behavior for weeks. She flicks her fingers a little perhaps unconsciously dismissing that sort of research as lesser. It should work, but it has to be done fast by someone who has the necessary precision and endurance. The bugs just dig in and go into hibernation otherwise. Suddenly you understand. It's monstrous. 
It could also save Kostrima, and yet... You look at Ika. Ika shrugs, but you think you read tension in her shoulders. You have never understood how Yika does the things she does with orogeny. She's a feral. In theory, she's capable of doing anything you can. A dedicated self-teacher could conceivably master the basics and then refine them from there. Most self-taught ragas just don't. But you obsessed Yika when she's working, and it's obvious that in the fulcrum she'd be ringed, though only two or three rings. She can shift a boulder, not a pebble. And yet, she can somehow lure every raga in a hundred-mile radius to Kastrima. And yet, there's whatever she did to cut her. And yet, there is a solidity to her, a stability and implication of strength, even though you've seen nothing to explain it, which makes you doubt your fulcrumish assessment of her. A two- or three-ringer doesn't cess like that. And yet, orogeny is orogeny, sesapine are sesapine, flesh has limits. That army fills both Kostrima over and the forest basin, you say. You'll pass out before you can ice half of a circle that big. Maybe. Definitely. Yika rolls her eyes. I know what I'm rusting doing because I've done it before. There's a way I know. You sort of... She falters. You decide, if you manage to live through this, that the Ragas of Kostrima should start trying to come up with words for the things they do. Ika sighs in frustration herself, as if hearing your thought. Maybe this is a fulcrum thing? When you run with another Raga, keep everybody at the same pace. Train yourself to the capabilities of the least, but use the endurance of the greatest. You blink and then a chill passes through you. Earth fires and rust buckets. You know how to... Alabaster did it to you twice, long ago. Once to seal a hot spot, and once to save himself from poisoning. Parallel scale? Is that what you call it? Anyway, when you form a whole group working in parallel in a... a mesh, I could do it with Cutter and Tamil before. Anyway, I can do that now. Use the other rogas. Even the kids can help. She sighs. You've guessed already. Thing is, the person who holds the others together. The yoke, you think, remembering a long ago angry conversation with Alabaster. That's the one that burns out first. Has to, to take on the, the friction of it. Or everybody in the mesh will just cancel each other out. Nothing happens. Burns out. Dies. Yika. You're a hundred times more skilled, more precise than her. You can use the obelisks. She shakes her head, bemused. You ever, uh, meshed with anyone before? I told you it takes practice. And you've got another job to do. Her gaze is intent. I hear your friend finally kicked off in the infirmary. He teach you what you needed to know before. You look away, bitterness in your mouth, because the proof of your mastery of individual obelisks is the fact that you killed him with one. But you're no closer to understanding how to open the gate. You don't know how to use many obelisks together. 
First a network, then the gate. Don't rust it up, Asun. Oh, Earth. Oh, you amazing ass, you think. It's self-directed, as well as a thought thrown toward Alabaster. Teach me how to build a mesh with you, you blurt at Yika. A network, let's call it a network. She frowns at you. I just told you, that's what he wanted me to do. Flaking fucking rust. You turn and start pacing, simultaneously excited and horrified and furious. Everyone's staring at you. Not networking orogeny. Networking. All those times he made you study the threads of magic in his body, in your own body, getting a feel for how they connect and flow. And of course, he couldn't just rusting tell me. Why would he ever do anything that sensible? Essen. Taki's eyeing you sidelong, a worried look on her face. You're starting to sound like me. You laugh at her, even though you didn't think you'd be able to laugh ever again after what you did to Baster. Alabaster, you say. The man in the infirmary, my friend. He was a ten-ring origin. He's also the man who broke the continent up north. Lots of murmurs at this. Tlino, the baker, says. A fulcrum raga? He was from the fulcrum and he did this? You ignore him. He had reasons. Vengeance and the chance to make a world that Koru could have lived in, even if Koru was no longer alive. Do they need to know about the moon? No, there's no time, and it would just confuse everyone as much as the whole mess confuses you. I didn't understand how he did it until now. First a network, then the gate. I need to learn how to do what you're about to do, Ika. You can't die till you teach me. Something shakes the ambient. It's small, relative to the power of a shake and localized. You and Yika and any other ragas on Flattop immediately turn and look up, orienting on it. An explosion. Someone set off small, shaped charges and brought down one of the tunnels that leads out of Kastrima. A few moments later, there are shouts from Scenic Overlook. You squint in that direction and see a party of strongbacks, the ones who were guarding the main tunnel into the calm when you went up to speak with Daniel and the Renanis people, trotting to a halt, breathless and anxious-looking and dusty. They blew the tunnel as they fled. Yika shakes her head and says, Then let's work together on the escape tunnel. Hopefully, we won't kill each other in the process. She beckons, and you follow. And together you half walk, half trot toward the opposite side of the geode. This happens by unspoken agreement. Both of you instinctively know exactly where the best additional point to breach the geode lies. Around two platforms, across two bridges, and then the far wall of the geode is there buried in stubby crystals, too short to house any apartments. Good. Yika raises her hands and makes a rectangle shape, which confuses you, until you assess the sudden sharp force of her orogeny, which pierces the geode wall at four points. It's fascinating. You've observed her before when she does orogeny, but this is the first time she's tried to be precise about something. And... It's completely not what you expected. 
She can't shift a pebble, but she can slice out corners and lines so neatly that the end result looks machine-carved. It's better than you could have done, and suddenly you realize. Maybe she couldn't shift a pebble, because who the rust needs to shift pebbles? That's the fulcrum's way of testing precision. Yika's way is to simply be precise where it is practical to do so. Maybe she failed your tests because they were the wrong tests. Now she pauses and you assess her hand being extended to you. You are standing on a platform around a crystal shaft too narrow for apartments, which instead harbors storerooms and a small tool shop. It's recently made, so the railing is made of wood, and you don't much like entrusting your life to it. But you grip the railing and close your eyes anyway, and orogenically reach for the connection that she offers. She seizes you. If you hadn't been used to this from Alabaster, you would have panicked. But it's the same as what happened back then. Yika's orogeny sort of melds with and consumes yours. You relax and let her take control, because instantly you realize you are stronger than her and could, should, take control yourself. But you are the learner here, and she is the teacher. So you hold back to learn. It is a dance of sorts. Her orogeny is like a river with eddies, curling and flowing in patterns and at a pace. Yours is faster, deeper, more straightforward, more forceful. But she modulates you so efficiently that the two flows come together. You flow slower and more loosely. She flows faster, using your depth to boost her force. For an instant, you open your eyes, see her leaning against the crystal column and sliding down to crouch at its base so that she doesn't have to pay attention to her body while she concentrates. And then you are within the geode's crystal substrate, through its shell and burrowing into the rock that surrounds it, flowing around the warps and wens of ancient cold stone, flowing with Yika so easily that you are surprised. Alabaster was rougher than this, but maybe he wasn't used to doing it when he first tried it with you. Yika has done this with others, and she is as fine a teacher as any you have ever had. But, but, oh, you see it so easily now. Magic. There are threads of it interwoven with Yika's flow, supporting and catalyzing her drive where it is weaker than yours, soothing the layer of contact between you. Where's all this coming from? She drags it out of the rock itself, which is another wonder, because you have not realized until now that there is any magic in the rock. But there it is, flitting between the infinitesimal particles of silicon and calcite as easily as it did between the particles of alabaster's stone substance. Wait, no. Between the calcite and the calcite specifically, though it touches the silicon, it is being generated by the calcite, which exists in limestone inclusions within the stone. At some point, millions or billions of years ago, you suspect, this whole area was at the bottom of an ocean or perhaps an inland sea. Generations of sea life were born and lived and died here, then settled to that ocean's floor, forming layers and compacting. Are those glacier scrapings that you see? 
Hard to tell. You're not a geomess. But what you suddenly understand is this. Magic derives from life. That which is alive or was alive, or even that which was alive so many ages ago that it has turned into something else. All at once, this understanding causes something to shift in your perception and... 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 You see it suddenly. The network. A web of silver threads interlacing the land, permeating rock, and even the magma just underneath. Strung like jewels between forests and fossilized corals and pools of oil. Carried through the air on the webs of leaping spiderlings. Threads in the clouds, though thin, strung between microscopic living things in water droplets. Threads as high as your perception can reach, brushing against the very stars. And where they touch the obelisks, the threads become another thing entirely. For of the obelisks that float against the map of your awareness, which has suddenly become vast, miles and miles you are perceiving with far more than your Cisapene now, each hovers as the nexus of thousands, millions, trillions of threads. This is the power holding them up. Each blazes silvery white in flickering pulses. Evil Earth. This is what the obelisks are when they aren't real. They float and they flicker, solid to magic to solid again. And on another plane of existence, you inhale in awe at the beauty of them. And then you inhale again, as you notice close by, Yika's control tugs at you, and belatedly you realize she has used your power even as you meandered through Epiphany. Now there is a new tunnel slanting up through the layers of sedimentary and igneous rock. Within it is a staircase of broad, shallow steps, straight up, except for wide, regular landings. Nothing has been excavated to make room for these stairs. Instead, Yika has simply deformed the rock away pressing it into the walls and compressing it down to form the stairs and using the increased density to stabilize the tunnel against the weight of the rock around it. But she has stopped the tunnel just shy of breaching the surface. And now she unweaves you from the network, that word again. You blink and turn to her, understanding why at once. You can finish it, Ika says. She's getting up from the platform, dusting off her butt. Already she looks weary. It must have tired her trying to modulate your surprised fluctuations. She cannot do this thing she has chosen to do. She'll burn out before she's made it halfway around the valley. And she doesn't have to now. No, I'll take care of it. Yika rubs her eyes. Essie? You smile. For once, the nickname doesn't bother you. And then you use what you just learned from her, grabbing her the way Alabaster once did, grabbing all the other ragas in the calm too. There is a collective flinch as you do this. They're used to it from Yika, but they know a different yoke when they cess it. You have not earned their trust as she has. Yika stiffens, but you don't do anything, just hold her. And now it's obvious. You really can do it. Then you drive the point home by connecting to the spinal.
It is behind you, but you cess the instant that it stops flickering and instead sends forth a silent, earth-shivering pulse. Ready, you think it's saying, as if it speaks. Yika's eyes widen suddenly as she cesses just how the obelisk's catalysis charges, awakens, awakens the network of ragas. That's because you're now doing the thing that Alabaster tried to teach you for six months, using orogeny and magic together in a way that supports and strengthens each, making a stronger whole. Then integrating this into a network of origins, working toward a single goal, all of them together stronger than they are individually, and plugged into an obelisk that amplifies their power manifold. It is amazing. Alabaster failed to teach it to you because he was like you, fulcrum-trained and fulcrum-limited, taught only to think of power in terms of energy and equations and geometric shapes. He mastered magic because of who he was, but he did not truly understand it. Neither do you even now. Ika, feral that she is, with nothing to unlearn, was the key all along. If you hadn't been so arrogant. Well, no. You cannot say Alabaster would be alive. He was dead the instant he used the obelisk gate to rip the continent in half. The burns were killing him already. That you finished it was mercy. Eventually you will believe that. Yika blinks and frowns. You okay? She knows the magic of you and tastes your grief. You swallow against the lump in your throat, carefully, keeping tight hold of the power held pent within you. Yeah, you lie. Yika's gaze is too knowing. She sighs. You know, we both get through this. I have a stash of human essence already in one of the stock caches. Want to get drunk? The tightness in your throat seems to snap, and you laugh it out. Seredis is a distilled liqueur made from a fruit of the same name that was harvested in the foothills just outside Eumenes. The trees didn't grow well anywhere else, so Yika's stash might be the last Seredis in the whole of the stillness. Pricelessly drunk? Disastrously drunk. Her smile is weary, but real. You like the sound of this. If we get through this, but you're pretty sure that you will now. There's more than enough power in the origin network and the spinal. You'll make Kastrima safe for stills and ragas and anything else that's on your side. No one needs to die, except your enemies. With that, you turn and raise your hands, splaying fingers as your orogeny and magic stretch forth. You perceive Kastrima, over, under, and all the matter between and below and above. Now the army of Renanis is before you, hundreds of points of heat and magic on your mental map, some clustering in houses that do not belong to them, and the rest clustering around the three tunnel mouths that lead into the underground calm. In two of the tunnels, they've broken through the boulders that one of Kostrima's ragas positioned to seal them. In one of these, rocks have collapsed the passageway, some of the soldiers are dead, their bodies cooling. Other soldiers are working to clear the blockage. 
You can tell that's going to take a few days at least. But in the other flaking rust, they found and disabled the charges. You taste the acridity of unspent chemical potential and the sourness of bloodlust sweat. They are making their way unobstructed toward Kastrima under and are more than halfway to scenic overlook. In minutes, the first of them, several dozen strongbacks bristling with long knives and crossbows and slingshots and spears will hit the comms defenses. Hundreds more will file into the tunnel mouth behind them. You know what you have to do. You withdraw from this close view. Now the forest around Kastrima spreads below you. Wider view. Now you taste the edges of Kastrima's plateau and the nearby depression that is the forest basin. Obvious now that there was once a sea here and a glacier before that and more. Obvious too are the knots of light and fire that comprise the life of the region scattered throughout the forest. More of it than you thought, though much of it is hibernating or hidden or otherwise guarding itself against the season's onslaught. Very bright along the river. Boil bugs infest both its banks and most of the plateau and basin beyond. You begin with the river then, delicately chilling the soil and air and stone along its length. You do this in pulsating waves, there and cool, and there again and a little cooler. You drop the air pressure just on the inside of the circle of cold you're shaping, which causes wind to blow inward toward Kastrima. It is encouragement and warning. Move and you'll live, stay, and I'll ice you little bastards to extinction. The boil bugs move. You perceive them as a wave of bright heat that surges out of underground nests and above-ground feeding piles that have formed around their many victims. Hundreds of nests, millions of bugs. You had no idea the forest of Kastrima was so riddled with them. Tonki's warning about the meat shortage is meaningless and too late. You could never have competed against such successful predators. You were always going to have to get used to the taste of human anyway. That's neither here nor there. The ring of cold around Kastrima's territory is complete, and you direct the energy inward in waves, pushing, herding. The bugs are fast, and rusting hell, they can fly. You'd forgotten the wing covers. And, oh, burning earth... Suddenly you're glad you can only assess what's happening topside, not see or hear it. What you perceive is painted in pressure and heat and chemical and magic. Here is a bright living cluster of Renanis soldiers bunched up within the confines of wood and brick as a swarm of blazing hot boil bug motes reaches it. Through the foundation of the house you cess pounding feet. The slam of a door, the fleshier slam of bodies against each other and the floor. Many shakes of panic. The shapes of the soldiers grow brighter upon the ambient as the bugs land and do their work, boiling and steaming. Tateus Hunter Kastrima was unlucky. Only a few bugs got him, which is why he didn't die of it. This is dozens of boil bugs per soldier, covering every accessible bit of flesh, and it is a kindness. They do not thrash for long, your enemies. And one by one, the houses of Kostrima over become still and silent once more. The network shudders in your yoke, 
None of the others like this. You steer them firmly, keeping them on task. There can be no mercy now. Now the swarms move into the basements, falling upon the soldiers gathered there, finding the hidden tunnels that lead down into Kastrima under. You lean on the spinal's power more here, trying to assess which of the living moats in the tunnels are Anonis' soldiers and which are Kastrima's defenders. They're in clusters, fighting. You have to help your people. Ah, rusting shit. Ika bucks against your control. And though you are too embedded in the network to hear what she says out loud, you get the idea. You know what you have to do. So you pull a chunk out of the walls and use this to seal off the tunnels. Some of Kastrima's strongbacks and innovators are on the boil bug side of the seal. Some of Renanis's soldiers are on the safe side of it. No one ever gets everything they want. Through the stone of the tunnels, you cannot help cessing the vibration of screams. But before you can force yourself to ignore this, there is another scream nearer by, a vibration that you perceive with eardrums and not sesapine. Startled, you begin to dismantle the network, but not fast enough, not nearly, before something yanks at your yoke, breaks it, throwing you and all the other ragas tumbling over each other and canceling one another's toruses as you come out of alignment. What the rust? Something has ripped two of your number loose. You open your eyes to find yourself sprawled on the wooden platform, one arm painfully twisted under you, your face pressed against a storage crate. Confused and groaning, your knees are weak. Being the yoke is hard. You push yourself up. Yika, what was... There is a sound beyond the crates, a gasp, a groan of wood from the platform beneath you as something incomprehensibly heavy stresses the supports. A crunch of stone so startlingly loud that you flinch, even as you realize you've heard this sound before. Grabbing the edge of the crate and the wooden railing, you haul yourself up on one knee. That's enough for you to see. Hoa, in a pose that your mind immediately and half-consciously names warrior, stands with one arm extended. From the hand dangles a head, a stone-eater's head, Hair a curling coiffure in mother of pearl, face gone below the top lip. The rest of the stone eater, lower jaw on down, stands in front of Hoa, frozen in a posture of reaching for something. You can see Hoa's face in partial side view. It isn't moving or chewing, but there's pale stone dust on his finely carved black marble lips. There's a divot about the size of a bite wound in what's left of the stone eater's nape. That was the familiar crunch. An instant later, the stone eater's remains shatter, and you realize Hoa's position has changed to put a fist through its torso. Then his eyes slide toward you. He doesn't swallow that you can see, but then he doesn't need his mouth to speak anyway. Renanis's stone eaters are coming for Kastrima's orogens. Oh, evil earth. You make yourself get up, though you feel lightheaded and unsteady on your feet. How many? Enough. Flick, and Hoa's head has turned away, 
toward scenic overlook. You look and see heavy fighting there. The people of Kastrima fighting back against the Renanese who've made it down the tunnel. You spy Danil among the attackers, laying on with twin long knives against two strongbacks, as nearby, Esni shouts for another crossbow. Hers has jammed. She drops her useless weapon and draws a napped agate knife that flashes white in the light, then throws herself into the Danil fight. And then your attention focuses on the nearer distance, where Penty has gotten herself tangled in a rope bridge. You see why. On the metal platform behind her stands another strange stone eater. This one all over citrine gold, but for the white mica around her lips. It stands with one hand extended, the fingers curled in a beckoning gesture. Penty is far from you, maybe fifty feet, but you can see tears streaking the girl's face as she struggles to extract herself from the ropes. One of her hands flops uselessly, broken. Her hand is broken. Your skin prickles all over. Hoa! There is a thunk against the wooden platform as he drops the head of his enemy, Esun. I need to go topside, fast. You can cess it up there, magic feel it, looming and huge. It's been here all along, but you've been shying away from it. Too much for what you needed before. Exactly what you need now. Topside's crawling, Essie. Nothing but boil bugs. Yika is standing just by bracing herself against the crystal's wall. You want to warn her the stone eaters can come through the crystal, but there isn't time. If you're too slow, they'll get her regardless. You shake your head and stagger over to Hoa. He can't come to you. He's so damned heavy that it's a wonder the wooden platform hasn't collapsed already. His pose has changed again, now that the other stone eater is just chunks scattered around him. Now he has moved to place one hand on the crystal's wall, though the rest of him is facing you. His other hand extends toward you, open with invitation. You remember a day by the riverside, after Hoa fell into the mud. You offered him a hand to help him up, not realizing he weighed of diamond bones and ancient tales untold. He refused you to keep his secret, and you were hurt, though you tried not to be. Now his hand is cool compared to the warmth of Kastrima. Solid, although he does not cess quite of stone, you realize in fleeting fascination. There's a strange texture to his flesh, a very slight yielding to the pressure of your fingers. He has fingerprints, that surprises you. Then you look up at his face. He's reshaped his expression from the coldness that you saw when he destroyed his enemy. Now there is a slight smile on his lips. Of course I'll help you, he says. So much of the boy is still in him that you almost smile back. There isn't time to parse this further, because all at once, Kastrima blurs into whiteness around you, and then there is darkness, earth and black. Hoa's hand is on yours, however, so you do not panic. Then you stand before the pavilion of Kastrima over, amid the dead and dying. Around you, on the walkways and pavilion flagstones, lie the soldiers of Renanis, their bodies twisted, some of them impossible to see beneath carpets of insects, a very few of them still crawling and screaming. The table that Anel used to plan the attack is overturned nearby. 
beetles crawl over its surface. There's that smell again, of meat in brine. The air swirls with boil bugs and the low-pressure breeze you created. One of the bugs darts toward you and you cringe. An instant later, Hoa's hand is where the bug was, dripping hot water as the tea kettle whistle of the crushed creature fizzles away. You should probably raise a Taurus, he advises. Flaking rust, yes. You begin to pull away from him so you can do this safely, but his hand tightens on your own just a little. Orogeny can't hurt me. You have more power at your disposal than just Orogeny, but he knows that, so all right then. You raise a high, tight Taurus around yourself, swirling with snow from the humidity, and immediately the boil bugs begin avoiding you. Perhaps they track prey by body heat. It's all irrelevant. You look up then at the blackness that blots out the sky. The onyx is like no obelisk you've ever seen. Most are shards, double-pointed hexagonal or octagonal columns, though you've seen a few that were irregular or rough-ended. This one is an ovoid cabochon, at your summons, descending slowly through the cloud layer that has hidden it since its arrival a few weeks before. You can't guess at its dimensions, but when you turn your head to take in the bowl of Kostrima over sky, the onyx nearly fills it, south to north, gray clouded horizon to underlit red. It reflects nothing and does not shine. When you look up into it, this is surprisingly hard to do without cringing. Only scuds of cloud around its edges tell you that it is actually hovering high above Kostrima. Looking at it, it feels closer, right above you. You have but to lift your hand. But some part of you is terrified of doing this. There is a strata-shaking thud as the spinal drops to the ground behind you, as if in supplication to this greater thing. Or perhaps it is only that, with the onyx here and pulling at you, drawing you in, drawing you up, oh, earth, it draws you so fast. There is nothing left of you that can command any other obelisk. You've got nothing to spare. You are falling up, flying into a void that does not so much rush you along as suck at you. You have learned from other obelisks to submit to their current. But at once you know better than to do that here. The onyx will swallow you whole, but you cannot fight it either. It will rip you apart. The best you can manage is a kind of precarious equilibrium in which you pull against it, yet still drift through its interstices. And too much of it is in you already. So much. You need to use this power or... or... But no, something is wrong. Something is slipping out of equilibrium. Suddenly there is light lashing around you, and you realize you are tangled in a trillion, quintillion threads of magic, and they are tightening. On another plane of existence, you scream. This was a mistake. It's eating you, and it is awful. Alabaster was wrong. Better to let the Stone Eaters kill every Raga in Kastrima and destroy the calm than die like this. Better to let Hoa chew you to pieces with his beautiful teeth. At least you like him. Love him. Lo, 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 love. Whiplash tightening of magic in a thousand directions. 
light lattice blazing alive suddenly against the black. You see, this is so far past your normal range that it is nearly incomprehensible. You see the stillness, the whole of it. You perceive the half-shell of this side of the planet, taste whiffs of the other side. It's too much, and fire under Earth, you're a fool. Alabaster told you, first a network, then the gate. You cannot do this alone. You need a smaller network to buffer the greater. You fumble toward the origins of Kastrima again, but you cannot grasp them. There are fewer of them now, their numbers flaring and snuffing out even as you reach. And they are too panicked for even you to claim. But there, right beside you, is a small mountain of strength, Hoa. You don't even try to reach for him because that strength is alien and frightening, but he reaches for you, stabilizes you, holds you firm which allows you to finally remember. The onyx is the key. The key unlocks a gate. The gate activates a network. And suddenly the onyx pulses, magma deep and earthen heavy, around you. Oh, earth, not a network of origins. He meant a network of... The spinal is first, right there. As it is, the topaz is next, its bright airy power yielding to you so easily. The smoky quartz, the amethyst your old friend plodding after you from Terimo, the kunzite, the jade, oh, the agate, the jasper, the opal, the citrine. You open your mouth to scream and do not hear yourself. The ruby, the spodumene, the aquamarine, the peridot, the... It's too much. You don't know if you're screaming the words in your mind or out loud. Too much. The mountain beside you says, they need you, Esun. And everything snaps into focus, yes. The obelisk gate opens only for a purpose. Down. Geode walls, flickering columns of proto-magic, what Kastrima is made of. You cess feel know the contaminants within its structure, those that crawl over its surfaces you permit. Yika, Penti, all the other ragas, and the stills who depend on them to keep the calm going, they all need you. Yet there are also those interfering with its crystal lattices, riding along its strands of matter and magic, lurking within the rock around the geode shell, like parasites trying to burrow in. They are mountains, too. But they are not your mountain. Pissed off the wrong Raga, Hoa said of his own incarceration. Yes. These enemy stone-eaters rusting did. You shout again, but this time it is effort. It is aggression. Snap, and you break lattices and magic strands and reseal them to your own design. Crack and you lift whole crystal shafts to throw them like spears and grind your enemies beneath. You look for Gray Man, the stone eater who hurt Hoa. But he is not among the mountains that threaten your home. These are just his minions. Fine. You'll send him a message then, written in their fear. 
by the time you're done. You've sealed at least five of the enemy stone eaters into crystals. Easy to do, really, when they are so foolish as to try to transit through them while you're watching. They phase into the crystal. You simply deface them, freezing them like bugs in amber. The rest are fleeing. Some flee north, unacceptable, and distance is nothing for you now. You pull up and wheel and pierce down again, and there is Renanis, nestled within its lattice of nodes like a spider among its bundled, sucked dry prey. The gate is meant to do things on a planetary scale. It is nothing to you to drive power down and inflict upon every citizen of Renanis the same thing you did to the woman who would have beaten Penty to death. Bullies are bullies. So simple to twist the flickering silver between their cells until those cells grow still, solid, stone. It is done. And Kastrima's war won in the span of a breath. Now it's dangerous. Now, you understand, to wield the power of this network of obelisks without a focus is to become its focus and die. The wise thing to do, now that Kastrima is safe, would be to dismantle the gate and withdraw from the connection before it destroys you. But there are other things you want besides Kastrima's safety. The gate is like orogeny, you see. Without conscious control, it responds to all desires as if they are the desire to destroy the world. And you will not control this. You cannot. This desire is as quintessential to you as your past or your defensive personality or your many times broken heart. Nasun, your awareness spins, south, tracking. Nasun, interference, it hurts. The pearl, the diamond, the sapphire. It resists being pulled into the network of the gate. You barely noticed before, overwhelmed as you were by dozens, hundreds of obelisks. But you notice now because Nasun, it's her. It is your daughter, it's Nasun. You know the stolid complexity of her as you know your own heart and soul, it's her. Written all over this obelisk. And you have found her, she is alive. It's your goal accomplished. The gate automatically begins to disengage. The other obelisks disconnect. The onyx releases you last, albeit with a whiff of cold reluctance. Next time. And as your body sags and lists to one side because something suddenly throws off your balance, hands take hold of you and pull you upright. You can barely lift your head. Your body feels distant, heavy, like the sensation of being in stone. You have not eaten in hours, but you feel no hunger. You know you've been taxed far beyond your own endurance, but you feel no exhaustion. There are mountains around you. Rest, Esun, says the one you love. I'll take care of you. You nod with a head heavy as a boulder. Then new presences pull at your attention and you force yourself to look up one last time. Antimony stands before you, impassive as ever. 
but there is something comforting about her presence nevertheless. You know instinctively that she is no enemy. Beside her stands another stone eater, tall, slender, somehow awkward in its draped clothing, all over white, though the shape of its facial features is eastern coaster. Full mouth and long nose, high cheekbones, and a sculpture of neatly sculpted kinky hair. Only its eyes are black, and though they watch you with only faint recognition, with a puzzled flicker of something that might be, but should not be memory. Something about those eyes is familiar. How ironic. This is the first time you've ever seen a stone eater made of alabaster. And then you are gone. What if it isn't dead? Letter from Rideau Innovator de Bars to 7th University, sent via courier from Alia Cortant and Com after the raising of the Garnet Obelisk, received three months after word of Alia's destruction spread via telegraph. Unknown reference. Interlude. You fall into my arms, and I take you to a safe place. Safety is relative. You have driven off my unsavory brethren, those of my kind who would have killed you since they cannot control you. As I descend into Kastrima, however, and emerge in a quiet space of familiarity, I smell iron on the air, amid the shit and stale breath and other scents of flesh and smoke. The iron is a flesh scent, too that variant of iron which is contained in blood. Outside, there are bodies along the walkways and steps. One even dangles from a rope slide. The fighting is mostly over, however, because of two things. First, the invaders have realized they are trapped between the insect-infested surface and their enemies who are greater in number now that most of the invading army is dead. Those who wish to live have surrendered. Those who fear a worse death have flung themselves on the swords or crystals of Kastrima. The second thing that has stopped the fighting is the inescapable fact that the geode is badly damaged. All over the calm, the once glowing crystals now flicker in irregular pulses. One of the longer ones has detached from the wall and broken, its dust and rubble scattered along the geode floor. On the ground level, warm water has stopped flowing into the communal pool, though occasionally there is a haphazard spurt of it. Several of the comms crystals are completely dark, dead, cracked, but within each a darker shape can be seen, frozen and trapped. Humanoid. Fools. That's what you get for pissing off my raga. I lay you in a bed and make certain there is food and water nearby. Feeding you will be difficult now that I have shed the quickened sheath I wore to friend you but most likely someone will be along before I am forced to try. We are in Lerna's apartment. I've put you in his bed, 
He will like that, I think. You will too once you want to feel human again. I do not begrudge you these connections. You need them. I do not begrudge you these connections. You need them. But I position you carefully so that you will be comfortable, and I place your arm atop the covers so you will know as soon as you awaken that you must now make a choice. Your right arm, which has become a thing of brown, solidified, concentrated magic. No crudeness here. Your flesh is pure, perfect, wholesome. Every atom is as it should be. The arcane lattice, precise and strong. I touch it once, briefly, though my fingers barely notice the pressure. Leftover longing from the flesh I wore so recently. I'll get over it. Your stone hand is shaped into a fist. There's a crack across the back of it perpendicular to the hand bones. Even as the magic reshaped you, you fought. You fought. This is what you must become. You have always fought. Ah, I grow sentimental. A few weeks' nostalgia in flesh. And I forget myself. Thus, I wait. And hours or days later, when Lerna returns to his apartment, stinking of other people's blood and his own weariness, he stops short at the sight of me, standing watchman in his living room. He's still for only a moment. Where is she? Yes, he's worthy of you. In the bedroom? He goes there immediately. There's no need for me to follow. He'll be back. Some while later, minutes or hours. I know the words, but they mean so little. He returns to the living room where I stand. He sits heavily and rubs his face. She will live, I say, unnecessarily. Yes. He knows it's a coma, and he will tend you well until you wake. A moment later... He lowers his hands and gazes at me. You didn't, uh, he licks his lips. Her arm, I know exactly what he means. Not without her permission. His face twists. I'm faintly repelled before I remember that not long ago, I too was so constantly, wetly in motion. Glad that's over with. How? Honorable of you, he says, in a tone that he probably means as an insult. No more honorable than his decision not to eat your other arm. Some things are simple decency. Some while later, probably not years because he hasn't moved, possibly hours because he does look so very tired, he says, I don't know what we're going to do now. Kostrima's dying. As if to emphasize these words, the crystal around us stops glowing for a moment, dropping us into darkness lit harshly by the light from outside the apartment. Then the light returns. Lerna exhales, his breath redolent of fear aldehydes. 
we're calmless. It isn't worth pointing out that they would have also been calmless if their enemies had succeeded in slaughtering Aesun and the other origins. He'll figure it out eventually, in his plodding, sweaty way. But since there's one thing he does not know, I speak it aloud. Renanis is dead, I say. Esun killed it. What? He heard me. He just doesn't believe what he heard. You mean, she iced it? From here? No, she used magic, but all that matters is. Everyone within its walls is now dead. He ponders this for eternities, or maybe seconds. An equatorial city would have vast store caches, enough to last us years. Then his brow furrows. Traveling there and bringing that many goods back would be a major undertaking. He isn't a stupid man. I ponder the past while he figures things out. When he gasps, I pay attention to him again. Renanis is empty. He stares at me, then gets to his feet, thumping and sloshing across the room. Evil earth, Hoa. That's what you're saying? Intact walls, intact homes, store caches? And who the rust are we going to have to fight for it? No one with sense goes north these days. We could live there. At last, I return to my contemplations, even as he mutters to himself, and paces, and finally laughs aloud. But then Lerna stops, staring at me, his eyes narrow in suspicion. You do nothing for us, he says softly, only for her. Why are you telling me this? I shape my lips into a curve, and his jaw tightens in disgust. I shouldn't have bothered. Esun wants somewhere safe for Nasun, I say. Silence for maybe an hour, or a moment. She doesn't know where Nasun is. The obelisk gate permits sufficient precision of perception. A flinch. I remember the words for movement, flinch, inhale, swallow, grimace, earth fires. Then he sobers and turns to look at the bedroom curtain. Yes, when you wake, you will want to go find your daughter. I watch this realization soften Lerner's face, weigh down the tension of his muscles. Slacken his posture. I have no idea what any of these things means. Why? It takes a year for me to realize he's speaking to me and not himself. By the time I figure it out, however, he has finished the question. Why do you stay with her? Are you just hungry? I resist the urge to crush his head. I love her, of course. There, I've managed a civil tone. Of course, Lerner's voice has grown soft. 
Of course. He leaves then to ferry the information I've given him to the comm's other leaders. There follows a century or a week of frantic activity as the other people of the calm pack and prepare and gather their strength for what is sure to be a long, grueling and, for a few, deadly journey. But they have no choice. Such is life, in a season. Sleep, my love. Heal. I'll stand guard over you and be at your side when you set forth again. Of course. Death is a choice. I will make certain of that for you. But not for you. Twenty. Nasun. Faceted. But also, I listen through the earth. I hear the reverberations. When a new key is cut, her biddings finally ground and sharpened enough that she can connect to the obelisks and make them sing. We all know of it. Those of us who hope seek out that singer. We are forever barred from turning the key ourselves, but we can influence its direction. Whenever an obelisk resonates, you may be sure that one of us lurks nearby. We talk. This is how I know. In the dead of the night, Nasun wakes. It's dark in the barracks still, so she's careful not to step on the creakier floorboards as she pulls on her shoes and jacket and makes her way across the room. None of the others stirs, if they even wake and notice. They probably just think she has to go to the outhouse. Outside, it's quiet. The sky is beginning to lighten with dawn in the east, though it's harder to tell now that the ash clouds have thickened. She goes to the top of the downhill path and notices a few lights on in Jackety. Some of the farmers and fishers are up. In found moon, though, all is still. What is it that tugs at her mind? The feel of it is irritating, gummy as if something is caught in her hair and needs to be yanked free. The sensation is centered in her sesapine. No, deeper. This tugs at the light of her spine, the silver between her cells, the threads that bind her to the ground, and to found moon and to shafa, and to the sapphire that hovers just above the clouds of jackety, visible now and again when the clouds break a little. The irritation is, it is north. Something is happening up north. Nasun turns to follow the sensation, climbing the hill up to the crucible mosaic, and stopping at its center as the wind makes her hair puffs shiver. Up here she can see the forest that surrounds Jeckety spread before her like a map. Rounded treetops and occasional outcroppings of ribbon basalt, Part of her can perceive shifting forces, reverberating lines, connections, amplification. But of what? Why? Something immense. What you perceive is the opening of the obelisk gate, says Steele. She is unsurprised to find him suddenly standing beside her. More than one obelisk? 
Nasun asks, because that's what she's assessing. Lots more. Everyone stationed above this half of the continent. A hundred parts of the great mechanism beginning to work again as they were meant to. Steele's voice, baritone and surprisingly pleasant, sounds wistful in this moment. Nasun finds herself wondering about his life, his past, whether he has ever been a child like her. That seems impossible. So much power. The very heart of the planet is channeled through the gate, and she uses it for so frivolous a purpose. A faint sigh. Then again, so did its original creators, I suppose. Somehow, Nasun knows that Steele is talking about her mother with that she. Mama is alive and angry, and full of so much power. What purpose? Nasun makes herself ask. Steele's eyes slide toward her. She has not specified whose purpose she means, her mother's or those ancient people who first created and deployed the obelisks. The destruction of one's enemies, of course. A small and selfish purpose that feels great in the moment, though not without consequence. Nasun considers what she has learned and sessed and seen in the dead smiles of the other two guardians. Father Earth fought back, she says. As one does, against those who seek to enslave. That's understandable, isn't it? Nasun closes her eyes. Yes, it's all so understandable, really, when she thinks about it. The way of the world isn't the strong devouring the weak, but the weak deceiving and poisoning and whispering in the ears of the strong until they become weak, too. Then it's all broken hands and silver threads, woven like ropes, and mothers who move the earth to destroy their enemies, but cannot save one little boy, girl. There has never been anyone to save Nasun. Her mother warned her there never would be. If Nasun ever wants to be free of fear, she has no choice but to forge that freedom for herself. So she turns slowly to face her father, who stands quietly behind her. Sweetening, he says. It's the voice he usually uses for her, but she knows it isn't real. His eyes are cold as the ice she left all over his house a few days ago. His jaw is tight, his body shaking just a little. She glances down at his tight fist. There's a knife in it, a beautiful one made from red opal, her favorite of his more recent work. It has a slight iridescence and a smooth sheen that completely disguises the razor sharpness of its napped edges. Hi, Daddy, she says. She glances towards Steele, who is surely aware of what Jija intends. But the gray stone eater has not bothered to turn away from the pre-dawn forestscape or the northern sky where so many earth-changing things are happening. Very well. She faces her father again. Mama's alive, Daddy. If the words mean anything to him, it doesn't show. He just keeps standing there, looking at her. Looking at her eyes in particular. She's always had her mother's eyes. Suddenly it doesn't matter. Nasun sighs and rubs her face with her hands. 
as weary as Father Earth must be after so many eternities of hate. Hate is tiring. Nihilism is easier, though she does not know the word, and will not for a few years. It's what she's feeling regardless, an overwhelming sense of the meaninglessness of it all. I think I understand why you hate us, she says to her father as she drops her hands to her sides. I've done bad things, Daddy, like you probably thought I would. I don't know how to not do them. It's like everybody wants me to be bad, so there's nothing else I can be. She hesitates, then says what's been in her mind for months now, unspoken. She doesn't think she'll have another chance to say it. I wish you could love me anyway, even though I'm bad. She thinks of Shafa as she says this, though. Shafa, who loves her no matter what, as a father should. Jija just keeps staring at her. Elsewhere in the silence, on that plane of awareness that is occupied by Sistuna and whatever the sense of the silver threads is called, Nasun feels her mother collapse. To be specific, she feels her mother's exertion upon the shifting, glimmering network of obelisks suddenly cease. Not that it ever touched her sapphire. I'm sorry, Daddy, Nasun says at last. I tried to keep loving you, but it was too hard. He's much bigger than her, armed where she is not. When he moves, it is with a mountainous lumber, all shoulders first and bulk and slow build up to unstoppable speed. She weighs barely a hundred pounds, she has no real chance. But in the instant that she feels the twitch of her father's muscles, small reverberating shocks against the ground and air, she orients her awareness toward the sky in a single ringing command. The transformation of the sapphire is instantaneous. It causes a concussion of air that rushes inward to fill the vacuum. The sound this makes is the loudest crack of thunder Nasun has ever heard. Jija in mid-lunge, starts and stumbles, looking up. A moment later, the sapphire slams into the ground before Nasun, cracking the central stone of the crucible mosaic and a six-foot radius of ground around her. It isn't the sapphire as she's seen it up till now, although the sameness of it transcends things like shape. When she extends her hand to wrap around the hilt of the long, flickering knife of blue stone, she falls into it a little, up, flowing through watery facets of light and shadow, in, down into the earth, out, away, brushing against the other parts of the hole that is the gate. The thing in her hand is the same monstrous, mountainous dynamo of silvery power that it has always been. The same tool, just more versatile now. Jija stares at it, then at her, there is an instant in which he wavers and Nasun waits. If he turns, runs, he was her father once. Does he remember that time? She wants him to. Nothing between them will ever be the same again, but she wants that time to matter. No, Jija comes at her again, shouting as he raises the knife. 
So Nasun lifts the sapphire blade from the earth. It's nearly the length of her body, but it weighs nothing. The sapphire floats, after all. It's just floating here in front of her instead of above. She doesn't lift it either, strictly speaking. She wills it to move to a new position, and it does. In front of her, between her and Jija, so that when Jija angles his body to stab her, he cannot help bumping right into it. This makes it easy, inevitable, for her power to lay into him. She doesn't kill him with ice. Nasun defaults to using the silver instead of orogeny most days. The shift of Jija's flesh is more controlled than what she did to Eight's, largely because she is aware of what she's doing, and also because she's doing it on purpose. Jija begins to turn to stone, starting at the point of contact between him and the obelisk. What Nasun doesn't consider is momentum which carries Jija forward even as he glances off the sapphire and twists and sees what is happening to his flesh and starts to inhale for a scream. He doesn't finish the inhalation before his lungs are solidified. He does, however, finish his lunge, though it is off balance and out of control, more of a fall than an attack by now. Still, it is a fall with a knife as its focal point, and so the knife catches Nasun in the shoulder. He was aiming for her heart. The pain of the strike is sudden and terrible, and it breaks Nasun's concentration at once. This is bad, because the sapphire flares as her pain does, flickering into its half-real state and back as she gasps and staggers. This finishes Jija in an instant solidifying him completely into a statue with a frizz of smoky quartz hair and a round red ochre face and clothes of deep blue serendibite, because he wore dark clothing in order to stalk his daughter. This statue stands poised for only an instant, though, and then the flicker of the sapphire sends a ripple through him like a struck bell, not unlike the concussion of turned-inward orogenic force that a guardian once inflicted on a man named Inan. Jija shatters in the same way, just not as wetly. He's brittle stuff, weak, poorly made. The pieces of him tumble into stillness around Nasun's feet. Nasun gazes at the remains of her father for a long, aching moment. Beyond her, in found moon and down below in jeopardy, lights are coming on in the cabins. Everyone's been woken up by the thunderclap of the sapphire. There is confusion. Voices calling back and forth, frantic sessing and probes of the earth. Steele now gazes down at Jija with her. It never ends, he says. It never gets better. Nasun says nothing. Steele's words fall into her like a stone into water, and she does not ripple in their wake. You'll kill everything you love eventually, your mother Shafa, all your friends here in Found Moon, no way around it. She closes her eyes. No way, except one. A careful, considered pause. Shall I tell you that way? Shafa is coming. She can him, the buzz of him, 
the constant torment of the thing in his brain that he will not let her remove. Shafa, who loves her. You'll kill everything you love eventually. Yes, she makes herself say. Tell me how not to. She trails off. She cannot say, hurt them, because she has already hurt so many. She's a monster. But there must be a way for her monstrousness to be contained, for the threat of an origin's existence to be ended. The moon's coming back, Nasun. It was lost so long ago, flung away like a ball on a paddle string. But the string has drawn it back. Left to itself, it will pass by and fly off again. It's done that before, several times now. She can see one of her father's eyes, set into a chunk of his face, gazing up at her from amid the pile. His eyes were green, and now they have become a beautiful shade of clouded peridot. But with the gate, you can nudge it just a little. Adjust its trip. A soft, amused sound. The path that the moon naturally follows. Instead of letting it pass again, lost and wandering, bring it home. Father Earth's been missing it. Bring it straight here, and let them have a reunion. Oh. Oh. She understands suddenly why Father Earth wants her dead. It will be a terrible thing. Steele says softly, nearly in her ear because he's moved closer to her. It will end the seasons. It will end every season. And yet, what you're feeling right now, you need never feel again. No one will ever suffer again. Nasun turns to stare at Steele. He's bent toward her, a look of almost comical slyness chiseled on his face. Then Shafa trots to a stop before them. He's staring at the ruin of Jija, and she sees the moment when the realization of what he's seeing flickers across his face, a mobile shockwave. His ice-white gaze lifts to her, and she searches his expression with her belly clenched against imminent pain. There is only anguish in his face, fear for her, sorrow on her behalf, alarm at her bloodied shoulder wariness and protective anger as he focuses on steel. He is still her Shafa. The ache of Jija fades within the ease of his regard. Shafa will love her no matter what she becomes. So Nasun turns then to steel and says, Tell me how to bring the moon home. This has been a Hachette audio production of The Obelisk Gate, The Broken Earth, Book Two, written by N.K. Jemison, read by Robin Miles, produced and directed by Tommy Harron, post-production by Gabino Reyes. The Obelisk Gate is also available in print and digital formats from Orbit, a division of Hachette Book Group. For more Hachette Audio productions, visit us at hachetteaudio.com. Thank you for listening. Text copyright 2016 by N.K. Jemison. Audio production copyright 2016 by Hachette Audio. All rights reserved. 
Hachette Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. The duplicating, uploading, and distribution of this audiobook without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like permission to use material from the audiobook other than for review purposes, please contact permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. This audiobook is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are either the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously, and any resemblance to actual persons living or dead, events, or locales is entirely coincidental. <laughs>